This is the Blue Moon Podcast. Coming up, we've got all the news and views from Manchester City's week. Get involved with the debate by tweeting at Blue Moon Podcast and check out exclusive interviews on bluemoonpodcast.com. It's your club and this is your show. Just as it felt like City were beginning to get some momentum together, along comes an international break to ruin it all for us. But never fear, because it is a return to domestic action this week. And as always, the Blue Moon podcast is here to guide you through all the talking points ahead of the fixtures against West Ham and Lyon. City are reunited with former boss Manuel Pellegrini at the London Stadium on Saturday before travelling to France to hopefully get the job done and qualify for the knockout stages of the Champions League. The maths are simple. Win the game and Pep Guardiola's side will win the group. Don't forget, send your questions in for Ask the Panel on future shows. Tweet us at Blue Moon Podcast or email us through the website bluemoonpodcast.com. I'm your host for today's show, Sam Roscoe, and joining me in the studio, we have ESPN's Jonathan Smith. Hi, Sam. And City fan and blogger Richard Burns. Hello, Sam. Fellas, how has your international break been? Uh, like every international break, boring. Waiting for the real stuff to return. Richard, get up to anything nice? Uh, it's been all right. I've had the uh, wedding planning, Sam. Yes, congratulations. Yeah, thank you very much. I wasn't fishing for that <laughs> much. Um, but yeah, let's stop. Let's this become a wedding podcast and nobody needs that. No, absolutely not. Anyway, let us crack on. We have got some uh, some games to preview, which is nice after, after last week. West Ham then. Uh, now that the dust has settled on that, that wonderful performance against Manchester United, how are you feeling uh, about this season, how do you think it's going? Well, it's it's not far off being perfect, isn't it? So you you go to West Ham expecting nothing more than a, a comfortable win for City, and can't see anything anything else happening. Of course, City are one of three unbeaten teams, but you, you'd have to say they do look stronger than than Liverpool and Chelsea at this point, don't they? Well, it's the fact that this is the longest we've got into the season with three unbeaten teams it's a record-breaking season and City are top of the pile so when you break it down like that it only makes City start um, even more impressive because there's two sides below them who in in almost any other season you'd be describing their starts as almost perfect and then you've got City who points-wise okay they're only two points ahead of Liverpool to me, four points ahead of Chelsea, when you know how consistent City are, if I was a Chelsea fan, I think I'd already be looking at that as, I mean, not insurmountable, obviously, because if they beat us, then it's down to one point um, in December. But I think I'd be looking at that as where on earth do you start to bridge that gap? Because yeah. City are so ridiculously consistent. Um, they were last season, and this season they are better. And it's already hard to see... I mean, you know that obviously football throws up the strange results, but it's hard to see objectively where the drop points are really, really coming from. We've got a good, well, no, we've got a great big game record against the big teams, and we are streaks and streaks ahead of the smaller teams in the division. Now, of course, at some point, somebody's going to turn up a shock. It didn't happen to us last year against any of the smaller teams in the league. Um, so. There's odds on that at some point this year we're going to lose points that that we shouldn't. But overall, we're a stronger team than we were last season. It's strange, isn't Perfect. it? Because although that is that is true, it, it does, I don't really feel overwhelmed 
you know, it's only I think it's only later on when you you start to break it down. You go, wow, what a start it was. I, I'm not. Well, they feel like that at the minute. I just feel like it's the norm, you know what I mean? Well, I think it's partly the reason for that, possibly, is that at home they've had fairly bog-standard games, haven't mm. they? I think for the for the teams uh, that have been to the Etihad are essentially relegation candidates, aren't they? Newcastle, Huddersfield. United. Hey. <laughs> um, I can't remember the others. But, so it's it, it's it's been so run-of-the-mill at the Etihad, just turn up. Watch them win, go mm. home, um, with the exception of that surprise against Leon. Yeah. Um, what challenges do you think West Ham will, will pose on Saturday? What can we expect from them as a Pellegrini side now? He's got a chance to settle in now, maybe get a, a style going. What can you expect from from his team? Well, I mean, certainly during his time at City, he went on the, on the attack. He was always more con- concerned about how his side played than the opposition and whether that's slightly different at West Ham where he perhaps hasn't got this well he hasn't got the same strength of squad and resources um and he obviously turned over united earlier in the season he's not you know he's i'm not sure how how people remember him but he's not he's certainly not a stupid manager sometimes i think people think that he was a bit reckless with some of his decisions that he, like he how, tacti- many, how many goals would he need to score at, at Bayern Munich well, yeah, well, that was not, stupid not managerial a, stuff. Not, there, not a great moment, um, but I think I think back to the defeats at, at Liverpool, particularly 2014, when a point would have been a decent result, and yeah, anyway, it all went, all went wrong, but ultimately went right. Um, yeah, I think he'll, he, you know, he'll have a plan for City, um, but I don't, I just don't think that any manager has a good enough plan or squad to stop City at the moment when they're in the mood, just full of confidence. Um, yeah, he'll, he'll do his best. West Ham aren't big in front of goal, but they did score four against Burnley recently. I mean, City don't really tend to give up many chances these days, but you feel like they need to be a bit wary of complacency? Well, always. That's, that's City's biggest opponent I think where if City drop points and if they're going to lose games then by and large it starts with City not being at the best because City at the best are better than any team in in the country it's it's literally that simple um so teams can will have different plans and they will work to varying degrees you'll have the teams that come and get battered or that just give City the ball like Fulham did over and over again twice um or you have the teams that put up a much much better go of it like Wolves and that makes it difficult for City. But ultimately, against Wolves when City dropped points, they weren't at their best. So on sort of like Pellegrini having a plan, I agree, first of all, what what, um, what John said. Pellegrini didn't generally plan for other teams. It was more about sticking to his style, mm. and that will not serve West Ham well. And to me, the scariest part... like. The only bit that's made me nervous thinking about this game was thinking about how they played United off the park, particularly on in that game. But then I thought, well, they're not going to have that much of the ball. So a lot of their work is going to have to be done without the ball, and that is not generally the strength of a Pellegrini team. So, yes, I mean, City, City do have to be wary of complacency. But then on the flip side of that, the mental impact for most teams at the moment is that they are going onto the pitch already beaten. 
Yeah. Maybe more so at the Etihad. But that's been the case for over a year now. Most teams are beaten in the tunnel. It's that thing that United used to have and that Chelsea and Mourinho first time round for a couple of seasons had. All the great teams have it and, and City are there at the moment. Um, and I don't think they will be complacent. I think what City have got about them now is a proper, I don't really like the word, but a proper swagger about them again. That confidence when they walk onto the pitch oozes from every single player. And so I don't, I, I don't see complacency being a problem because I don't think Pep would like that setting. But it is the biggest potential enemy for them. There's been some really sort of staggering defensive stats about Manchester City's back two recently. Aymeric <laughs> uh, Laporte hasn't missed a minute of the Premier League. How just 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 how much has has he developed? Oh, he's yeah. I, I think he's been helped by the fact that everyone's been focusing on Virgil Van Dijk because I think Laporte has been one of the standout defenders uh, this year. In fact, I've written a piece today for ESPN about. Um, the bizarre way that it keeps being overlooked by fans because it makes no sense. Because, I mean, they've got a couple of good uh, centre halves for France, uh, like Varane and Titi. But how how do you lead, drop? How do you leave out someone as good as Laporte? Is, is it, have they not been watching him for the last four months? Because he's 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 barely put a foot wrong. I I would say there was one bad performance, which was at uh, Offenheim away, but he was playing left back that yeah, day, yeah. and I. I think that's probably killed the idea of that he can play left back because it, it wasn't. It, it's twice I've seen him now have a have a shocker there. But at centre half, he's been absolutely flawless. And you take that five goals conceded, you take away the Edison giving away two penalties, which I'm not blaming Edison for. That's that's the that's the game, that's part of it. Mm. But really, United that was United's only shot on target. Uh, that was Southampton's. Well, the only real threat on goal. Um, yeah, him and Stones at the moment just look fantastic. And Stones looks like he's added a bit of steel to his game. Yeah. Uh, and, he, you know, he's looking... They just look such a good, a good partnership at the moment. We, you know, we, we mention this every week on the Blue Moon podcast, but, you know, it, we've I've got to bring it up again just because every time they, they just impress me further, the, the partnership between... Laporte and Stones, they're, they're both very young. Now, normally when you know, you'd know you see a younger centre-back and an older centre-back and you'd say, oh, yeah, well, the older one's going to be passing on his experience, etc. But with them both being so young, so sort of fresh and so sort of... Um, not naive, really, because they're not, are they? But so... Uh, like a sponge, if you like, when they're in their development mm. and they're learning still very young. How do you think that they help each other in in that sense? Well, I think it helps that the games are so similar as well, that they understand each other. They they both have... They 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 naturally are predisposed to how Guardiola wants them to play, which is obviously why he went out and spent so much money on each of them. Um, but within that, the learning that they must do from each other um, must be huge. And, yeah, I think on the pitch they probably are quite similar personalities. I would say probably... Um, I'd say Stones at the moment is more of the leader. I think he's really matured in that sense, uh, particularly from his World Cup experience where he was, I don't know if age-wise, but in a experienced sense and successful sense. He was very much the, um, the, the, the most senior member of that England back line. And so having Harry Maguire next to him where Stones was really, really... I'd say the 
I say Maguire won more accolades, but Stones was the leader in the partnership. He's just become a, an incredibly calm head, and he's matured now, or he's very much nearly there, into the player that everybody thought that he could be. Laporte is of the same ilk. He's probably more consistent than Stones at this point in his City career. I know that's a weird thing to say because they're both so, um, they're pretty much the same age, three days apart. But at this point in his City career, Stones had already made a lot of mistakes and that step up had maybe affected him a little bit. Laporte's had none of that. He was probably helped by having six months to bed in before the pressure of a proper, you know, a, a tight Premier League campaign really affect is has had a chance to affect him. Um, but yeah, no, I think that they are clearly good for each other and I think the fact that Stones has taken that leadership role on um, I, I think benefits them both hugely. Andy Carroll could make a return for West Ham. He's had a bit of a knack of scoring against City in the past. Does that worry you at all? Uh, well, funnily enough, it, it, I did think that could be a potential threat but then I thought I mean, he's not. It's been a long time since he's done anything, isn't mm-hmm. it? So, uh, it's it's partly the old old fears of uh, you know a six foot six giant up front <laughs> who can just edit anything, and that can cause anyone problems. But and he, and he has. I do think when he's on his when he's on it, he's one of the hardest strikers in the world to stop. Uh, but you know that's I don't know, I can't remember the last time I saw him put put in a performance like. Like that, it's it's two, three, mm. four years ago, isn't it? So it, sh- it shouldn't be a worry. You know, Laporte and Stones can can pretty much deal with anything, and and uh, you know, the, the ball's going to be in West Ham's half for yeah. three quarters of the time, anyway. If anything, it, it, you know, you're more likely to catch City with pace, aren't you, on the counter attack? Yeah, he's he, he's not a he's not a get out ball, is he? He can he can hold it back, but he can hold it up, but he'll he'll chest it down and. One player will be stood behind him and the other one will just take it off his feet. Yeah, yeah. So, um, Sammy Nasri's been training with West Ham. No news yet if he's signing with them, but Pellegrini's trying to get the band together, isn't he? <laughs> the old band back together there. Would you be concerned coming up against Sammy Nasri? Not really. He's not... I don't think he'll last play. He can't be fit, can he? He can't, he can't play till January anyway. So. True. Um, I liked Nasri when he was at City. I thought he was a good player. Did you know He had a good couple of seasons and... And that Twitter thing was just absolutely sensational. It was the best night on Twitter, (laughs) apart from a certain member of parliament and a pig, uh, or a former member of parliament. um, That was the best night on Twitter. What doctor was it? What was it called? The Drip Doctor. Drip Doctor, that was it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, sensational stuff, that wasn't it? It really brings out the best of social media stuff like that. (laughs) really does. Um, Rumours are that Leroy Sané's in talks with the club over a contract extension. How big of a season is this for him with that increased competition in in Riyad Mahrez? I think this is a huge season for him developmentally. I think he's got to show a lot about himself now because his talent, his talent is beyond question. He's the potential to be one of the best footballers in the world. I I have no doubt about that. But now he's in a situation where Sterling, who obviously, again, developmentally, they should be in very, very similar positions, but Sterling now is undroppable. This team is unimaginable without him. Um, Bernardo Silva has really, really come into his own. David Silva, we expected, or or Pep suggested at the end of last season that David Silva would take more of a backseat. His performances are too good for that to happen. Um, And on the left, um, or, or more commonly on the left, I suppose, Mares is... 
after a ropey first few games, is proving his talent and proving his worth to the team. He's, I think he's an excellent footballer and he seems to be getting the nod in the big games a lot more than Sané is. Sané obviously had a slightly difficult start like he has done in each of his seasons with City to um, different extents. He's turned that around, I think, quite significantly. But he doesn't seem to be trusted by Guardiola mm. as much in the big games and that makes me wonder... Well, it makes me wonder why. And at the moment, it's hard to argue against Maris. I mean, he's even you know popping up with decisive goals in those games now, like he did at, um, against Spurs at Wembley. Uh, and so that all of that is without De Bruyne even being in the mix and and what that's going to force Pep to change because De Bruyne is going to, regardless of how good everybody else is, he's still going to be pretty much the first name on the team sheet. And so what effect that has across that front line um, is probably pretty hard to predict now. But all of that means it is a huge year for Sané because he's got to show something about his mentality. He's got to, he's not being, he's not missing out on, on account of his talent. He's just not, he's too good for that. So he's got to prove that when he when he's thrown into a big game, he's got to, got to throw in a huge performance. We're talking like a, a match-winning performance to wrestle that shirt back from Mahrez now. Is it a make or break season for Leroy, do you think? No, I, I, he was so good last season mm. and... Um, he just needs to get better because he's got the potential to be. I, I I've always likened him to someone like Robin in that uh, everyone knows what Robin's going to do and you just can't stop him. I think Sane's got that potential in that he, he's so quick. He's got he's got good feet, um, and he just needs to learn the game a little bit more. And it's obviously some some reason why he's not starting seasons. Um, and he needs to, needs to knuckle down and get and stop stop that happening. Really, he, when next season starts, he's got to be in it from the very beginning. Do you expect Guardiola to to tinker with the lineup, tinker with the, the system at all? Going to to West Ham, they have a bit of a habit of of scoring goals at West Ham recently as well. <laughs> yeah, it depends whether Bernardo is is back. Mm. We'll see. He picked up a bit of an injury with Portugal. Whether that keeps him out, he, he might he might. Um, Holding back with the trip to Leon coming up, Gundogan's obviously back. Um, you know, he, he, he was great for the fifteen minutes against United. He would have had, you know, a bit more uh, in his legs, so he, he's ready to to come back in. Uh, and obviously, Mendy's out, isn't he? So, mm. Delft did well for England. So, you'd think that he is, he would be earmarked for that position. But Zinchenko's done well this season, so. Maybe maybe Zinchenko for West Ham, Dell for Leon. Do you think that game against Leon on the horizon will have much of an impact in the in the mind of Pep Guardiola when it comes to the team formation? I think the South. I think he's bound to plan for it, but I don't think it's always obvious where one team selection accounts for another because the quality across the squad is so high, and Guardiola can pick it. Whatever team he picks looks like a first team. Mm. It's not going to be two different 11s, is it? So, um, yeah, I, I think he will account for it. But to be honest, I, I try and stay... I, I don't even go near predicting team lineups anymore because <laughs> it's it's almost impossible to do with Pep. I can tell you who the keeper will be and I can say Aguero will probably get the nod ahead of Jesus and, and Sterling will play. And beyond that... I mean, even Stones it, and Laporte. Yeah, but, he, but even that's not guaranteed, is it? Company and Otamendi can still play together if he wants them to, to save Laporte and Stones mm. for midweek. I would imagine it will be 
at least one of Stones, well, Laporte will play. Um, you would think Stones will, but I don't think it's nailed on. It's not like Company and Otamendi haven't been given a nod at all. So, yeah, I think it's just such a hard team to predict these days. Reports are that Brahim Diaz has decided to leave City because of a lack of playing time. Can can you argue with that decision, if that is the case? Um, well, you can argue against it. You can say, you know, he's still very young. Um, I think, was he 19 now, I think? Um, and he's in the he's in a good place to, to, to learn. But you can't blame him for wanting to play more often. It's in, He's not been part of the Premier League squad this season. I don't think he's been part of the Champions League squad either this season. So it must be frustrating to spend the whole week training with the first team and know that you're not going to be anything to do with it on the, on the weekend. And... You know, he's holding the cards, isn't he? He's, you know, mm. he's an extremely gifted player. Um, but he isn't ready for the first team yet, I don't think. I think he can can have the odd cameo, but he did very well at Oxford. Obviously, he did well Fulham, and yeah. got two goals in the next game, although I didn't, didn't think he had a particularly mm. great game. Um, but it's just not it's just not enough to get ahead of Sterling, Sane, no. Mahrez. And if, you know, two... Two are starting, one's on the bench. He's he's always going to be the, the the man that drops out. So it's completely understandable. How close, Richard, do you think the likes of he and Foden are to, to starting Premier League games that aren't dead rubbers? Uh, well, Foden's closer. Foden is a truly extraordinary talent. Um, he's, the way he is on the pitch, the way he carries himself on the pitch. The, the, I mean, the kid is special and he looks it every single time he steps onto that pitch um, and he is at home with with those players around him so I would think this season we're going to see him start one or two, maybe a handful, I don't know, but I think we'll see him start one or two Premier League games that have some meaning to them, I mean he's not going to be starting away at United or Chelsea is he or starting at home to Liverpool but he will play more and more Premier League football this year. I'm pretty convinced about that. Um, if, if, if Bernardo's not fit, there's a chance he could start at West Ham. Yeah. He's very, very close. Um, Diaz is further away, isn't he? Yeah. I, I think significantly not. further away. Well, we will be getting our panellist predictions for that West Ham game. We'll also be turning our attentions to the Champions League very shortly. The Blue Moon Podcast Best Bits. My career was already planned in the East. Was was everything was planned, predictable. Uh, there was no freedom. Uh, we lived behind the Iron Curtain. Uh, we knew when you be a player playing in the DDR Oberliga, that is uh, like the Premier League here, who have a career over ten years, you will be made. You know, will then automatically go into coaching, and and uh, you have a you're a very privileged person in the system. Then I signed a contract. Uh, been out, been loaned out, um, then drafted to Magdeburg, then been coming in three, four months into the national team, and then certainly the wall fell down. So I was a very hot property at that time, uh, young, and uh, now all opportunities was open for me, uh, and that was also the challenge for me. How to I was in a very protected environment. Now it was obviously open a lot of options and possibilities and in that sports school where I stayed and lived 
Uh, we always listen in the evening when we had it to go to bed and the light was out. Uh, we, we we was listening under the bed sheet uh, about English English supporters songs. You know, we had a, a tape that was mostly from Enfield and there was a lot of songs on it and it was fascinating stuff. And uh, also uh, throughout the European games in the East, uh, we got a, a feeling of the English football culture, uh, the culture in the stadium, the singing and the terraces, and I was always excited about that. And then all options was open for me. I struggled on the way. I was uh, injured for half a year with Dynamo Dresden, and um, then this opportunity came around to go over and show myself and um, to rebuild my career. And um, I came to the right time, to the right place, with the right people in charge, and uh, the rest is history. Now, one of the one of the biggest influences on your career at City was was probably the manager that signed you in uh, in Brian Horton. Yes. What was your relationship like with him? Brian, um, he was the manager at the time. Um, I couldn't communicate much um, because my English was non non-existent, um, and I'm driven very much on communication. So it was very difficult for me to communicate, but. Um, the teammates I had around me, all credit to them, they took a lot of effort to integrate me. And sometimes I felt it was very difficult to integrate a person who, who can't speak. So, um, but they were, uh, they put a lot of effort in. Uh, the manager put also a lot of effort in to show me on the tactic board and try to communicate. And, and um, over time, I picked up quite quick. Maybe not the most sophisticated English, but uh, around Moss Side, so <laughs> Moss Side, Moss Side English. And no, I think um, obviously helped when Paul Walsh, Peter Beagri, I, and Stefan Carl came in. The results improved, and the players around me made it easy for me to settle. And um, the relationship with the manager went from strength to strength. Um, I also said the big part was also Francis Lee, uh, just. Appointed as a new chairman, I, f- I think I was his first signing, and um, uh, his son Gary, who is now one of my best friends in England, um, really, really looked after me and helped me in the in the first part. And um, I think that all there was a lot of people who helped me on the road to settle very quick for the, in this football club. You were told that you might not make it past Easter if you went home to Germany for for treatment. Yeah. How how shocking was that for you at the time? How did you how do you kind of deal with that? Well, obviously, I was in shock. I was in shock that a person who all his life more or less trained and and prepared himself for matches and very much focused on his body, on his fitness, on his um, on his machine to function, and then certainly from one day to another, people telling you maybe not even make it over the weekend. So uh, I was in shock. I didn't really got the message that deep. I was just in shock that uh, cancer and the word cancer at that point was very much in my head with death. So I was in shock. Um, needed a, needed a couple of weeks to come over that, and um, obviously the start of the chemotherapy very early was showing promise in science, and then the prediction of recovery. Got, got drastically better, and there was a there was a moment that I think will make any city fan smile. A phone call from a from a friend in England. Yeah, uh, just had another 
uh, chemotherapy injections and um, didn't feel very well and I got a phone call Saturday afternoon and um, and I didn't hear any, I didn't understood anything and then listen, listen, listen mate and then I was, I heard all, over the phone and the whole stadium was singing my name and and that was a fantastic inspiration. That was the first time I smiled for a while and uh, when you've been in a situation where I was, you need that sort of uh, that sort of situations where you can really push you up and give you another another 10, 20 percent to fight the cancer. Hi, my name is Uwe Ressler, former Manchester City player. You listen to the Blue Moon podcast. Hear the full interview on our website, bluemoonpodcast.com. So as we said at the start, the maths is simple. Win the game and win the group. Feeling confident? Yes, because they've got a point to prove in this one, haven't they? It's the only score they've got to settle from the season so far. Um, they were undoubted. <laughs> Sorry, Jonathan Smith's stomach is rumbling <laughs> and it sounds a little bit like a motorbike revving up. Um, the Yeah, I mean, against Leon. Leon came and did a good job on City. They, they did. They took it, but they took advantage of an off-colour City. And I, I mean, key to that was a very, very below par Fernandinho that day, who was, I think, if I remember rightly, was at fault in both goals. Certainly, the second one, Delft made a pretty uncharacteristic um, mistake in the first goal, where you know I'm just expecting to deal with it, but he lost his bearings a little bit. Big mistake. City found themselves behind and they could never really get back from it. Um, the end of that game was a little bit exciting because City got a goal, but they were never really, never really in it properly. Um, it's the most disappointing performance of the season, unquestionably the most disappointing result. But the Champions League campaign has been really, really good since then. It was probably a kick up the arse for City, truth be told, um, and a reminder about not being complacent. Yeah. Especially at Hoffenheim. Yeah, and. Uh, and getting through by beating Leon with a decent performance would be, a, I think, it would be a great way to exercising the ghost is a bit of a strong way to put you one defeat of the season, <laughs> but it would be a good way just to get uh, to to get them back basically. What lessons can they learn from that opening game against Leon, John? Um, I think that Leon have got a, a, a strong midfield. Um, they were hard running. You know, the pie is better than. Anyone thought after two years in England when he was not great, he looked he looked good, um, and they were they were well organised. They were set up to to stop City, frustrate them, and always looked a threat on the attack. And I, I would expect them to play in it almost exactly the same way. So, mm. um, but Pep will have obviously will have learned mm. from that first game, so they will be better prepared. What does this group say about many fans' criticisms that the group stages aren't exciting? I mean, City lost the opening game and still haven't really been troubled in, in winning it, assuming you know they win the next two games. I think the group stage of the Champions League are, are close to pointless, to be honest. Um, I, it, it, it's where the competition lends itself or, or doesn't do anything to avoid the criticism that it's set up for the big clubs. I mean, it's it's quite obvious the seeding system lends itself to that. Um it's a mark. Obviously, it's part of the competition, and obviously, you have to have the the 
lesser clubs in there that is right and proper, but because you weight it so heavily to the big clubs, it just becomes a marketing and um, uh, you know a marketing exercise for the Champions League. It's a fabulous competition. There are some great teams in it. In the knockout stages, I mean, last year was absolutely sensational. Um, but the, the knockout stages are not good. I, I I struggle to get truly, truly enthused mm. by it. And, you know, I love watching City. I love watching football. Um, but I just... You you all you usually get some big games, don't you? Like Liverpool's group. Liverpool's group is really good. There are big games right throughout that group, and there's a couple of others. I was going to say I, I thoroughly enjoyed watching that Lionel Messi performance at Wembley against Spurs. Yeah, unfortunately, I missed it. But that's still it's a good group. That that you know that is a good group. But by and large, the, the spread of teams does not lend itself to the group stage being particularly competitive. Most of them fall pretty much how you expect them to. But do you not think that that's the reason why the the latter stages are so good? Because you have these, you know, this, this necessarily this necessary evil, if you like, of the the group stage where it's a bit, you know, you've got to get through these little nitty gritty games to to get there, and then once you are at the quarters, the the semis, they're these huge, huge games that you know you don't get at per, the group stage. Yeah, in the in the big picture, perhaps. But then take for example, there's been take the Monaco got out of the group. I mean that was obviously a particularly good Monaco side. They're not typical of most teams that you would class as the unfancied teams. Monaco were particularly good that season, but you wouldn't have tipped them for getting out of the group to have had classic games against two, you know two mm. pretty classic games against City really one in particular, um, and, and making it through to the semi final. So. I, I don't follow the. I, I know this isn't what you said, so I'm not trying to like misquote you, but I don't. It doesn't follow that you have to have the big and supposedly better teams in the latter stages for it to be a good competition. Um, a case in point for that is a, it's not a direct comparison, but the World Cup this year, you had minnows doing quite well, getting um, getting further than. No, I mean look would, at England. Yeah, well, but exactly yeah. and. And through that, Croatia got to a final, which I know they're a good team, but you wouldn't necessarily tip that. Some really big teams go out early on, but the World Cup wasn't um, it wasn't diminished in quality by that. If anything, it was enhanced. And there's no reason why the Champions League couldn't uh, couldn't have a similar thing. But um, yeah, the competition as a whole is a very good competition. But the group stage, to me, just on the do I go along with it? It's not exciting. Yeah, generally I do because you know by and large what's going to happen. Do you think the Champions League will ever take a, a top priority for for City fans? Um, I, just, I don't know if I can answer that really. I just don't know what the if if, if City were to win five titles on the trot or something like that and be constantly frustrated in Europe, then maybe. But um, not at the moment. I wouldn't say no. Is it a, a top priority for the club, though? Oh, certainly, certainly, yeah. They want to be part of the, the the top sides in Europe, and to do that, you have to win the Champions League. And you know, they've they've got one of the best squads in Europe. They've got they've achieved that already. Um, now it's just a question of. I think yeah, the, the, Pep's sort of philosophy is that they've got to take take it in steps, and that they've got to become regulars in the in the quarterfinals and semi-finals, and that um, the the one season the city reached the semi final was 
sort of more by luck than judgment, really, mm. wasn't it? I think. Yeah. I mean, you, th- you think of that, the way they got past Paris Saint Germain. You know that it was it was Mangala and Di Michaelis at the back. <laughs> so, <laughs> see, they, they've not become they've not done it regularly, have they? So they, that's 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 the next step, isn't it? In that sense, is it a case of like getting through these these games like Leon and then you're focusing on the, the Premier League until the, the knockout phase? Yeah, well it's a it's a constant juggling thing, isn't it? But juggling the competitions. I mean this is why I'm I, I, I don't really separate them because It'd be great if you could say, right, in the Champions League, we'll, we'll we'll focus on this. But the reality is that in every game that you play, you play it to win it. And so you prepare for games in the build-up to winning it. I don't necessarily think, and maybe I'm being really naive here, but I'm not sure that at the start of the season, there's a plan of attack that you can draw up for each competition and stick to it. So, yes, once the Champions League group stage is done the focus will be the Premier League because that's what they're in. But that's on a game-by-game basis. As will the Champions League be once we're back into it, once the knockout stages commence. And then it becomes managing every single match purely Saturday or Sunday. And then you're playing again Tuesday, Wednesday and hopefully doing that right up until May. Um, I don't I don't necessarily hold that one is more of a focus than the other because City have such strength and depth that that doesn't need to be the case. It's each each tie or each game, game by game basis, get through it, play your next match. And obviously within that you account for, right, it, this player might not play this game because I do want it to be available for the next, but that doesn't mean that you're focusing on one game less. You're just judging them. You're judging each occasion on its own merits. Um to me, the Premier League will always be priority because I've lost count of how many times I've said this, so I won't drone on about it, but the Premier League is the only competition that truly tests your quality in in an equal sense to the way that it tests all your opponents' qualities. The Champions League can't do that because it's a cup competition and you don't have to play everybody in it and, and no team has to do that. So it can never be a priority to me, but or the priority, but that said... I'd very much like to win it. <laughs> How do you think he'll amend the the lineup from the weekend to to midweek? Can you see him? Can you, all right? Here's an easy question: Can you see him sticking with the same team in both games? Um, no, no. I think the centre halves. I don't think I don't think Stones and Laporte will play both, um, and I don't think maybe depending on. I think you know he's played Jesus a couple of times in mm. Champions League, so. I'd expect him to play in Lyon. Sane, Mares, Sterling. You know, I think two of what one of those will start both games. Two won't. So, just so I think yeah, I think he'll, he'll rotate it. Yeah, I can't see him playing the same eleven. No. Do you, it, it won't be massive though, will it? Do you not? Do you not think, Richard? It won't be like a big overhaul. If you... No, I, I don't think so because it, it very rarely is. Really, I think he's quite good at actually keeping that consistency, but. The change that you might see Gundogan step in, and and the, really, I, I'm not sure I can add anything to what to what John said. Could nail on the head, I think. Fair enough. Well, uh, it's time to get your predictions. We're up to £385 raised for the Christie on this season's charity bet. Thanks to David Mooney's correct score of 3-1 for the Manchester derby. Each member of the team gets a £10 correct score single with William Hill on all City's matches this season, with the winnings going to the Specialist Cancer Treatment Hospital in Manchester. We've had five winning bets so far this season, and three of them 
have uh, have been courtesy of David Mooney. So let's not feed his ego too much and let's see if uh, <laughs> someone else can win for a change. For this week's games, David has gone for a uh, 3-0 win for Manchester City at West Ham. Uh, which means £70 could be going into the pot because that is 7-1 to one with William Hill. He's also gone for a 2-1 win away at Lyon, which again is 7-1, to one, so £70 uh, could be added there. Jonathan, what have you gone for? Um, yeah, I've gone for 4-0. For, West, for the West Ham game? Away at West Ham, yeah. 4-0 yeah. with William Hill is 11-1, to one, which means a, a cool £110 could Very be added cool. to the pot. And uh, for the Lyon match? Um, what did I go for? I've forgotten. <laughs> I did go for. I did say. I, I did say. See one. I think. What did I say? I can't read your writing. A peek behind. Two the nil. Two nil. I'm pretty confident of that one. <laughs> <laughs> Two nil with William Hill is eight to one. So eighty quid could be going into the uh, the charity pot. Richard, your predictions, please, for West Ham. I'm having, because we've got such a good record there uh, and we're all going big wins, I'm having a City 5-1 victory. A whopping 5-1 is a whopping 25-1, to which means 250 quid could be going into the pot, which I hope is the case. And uh, the final one, away at Lyon. I expect Lyon to be very professional, so I'm going for a tight City 1-0 win. That is 10 to 1 with William Hill, which means £100 could be added. Remember, you've got to be 18 or over to gamble and prices can change. For more on responsible gambling, head over to begambleaware.org. Time to move on. And one of the biggest talking points of the last fortnight has been Sergio Aguero's haircut. You can really tell it's been an international week with with very little to talk about. And because we're looking at some of City's stars of recent years who haven't gone for the usual short back and sides, David Mooney is the one who's been scraping the bottom of the barrel. When he was substituted in the Manchester derby, Sergio Aguero had a long chat with manager Pep Guardiola. There was some speculation as to why, with rumours spreading that the striker wasn't happy about being taken off. After the game, though, he explained to City TV what that discussion was all about. No, solo me dijo. Uh, he said only that he didn't like my my haircut, but uh, apart apart from that, uh, when I was walking out, he he thought I, I might be angry for the substitution, but uh, nothing at all. I just I was walking because I, I was trying to win some time, but uh, everything okay. Aguero's new hair isn't the first time a City player has come under the microscope for their fashion sense. Mario Balotelli was often scrutinised for his range of hairdos throughout his two and a half seasons at the club. Meanwhile, you might remember this advert for Head & Shoulders Shampoo in 2015, featuring then-City keeper Joe Hart. You can never prepare too much, but it's the little things that make the difference. After everything that's been said, all eyes are on me. The weight of the nation's hopes on my shoulders. But I can't show any of that. My head's got to be sorted. That was around about the same time that City brought in Bakary Sanya from Arsenal. For his first season at the Etihad, the Frenchman kept the luscious locks he'd had throughout his years with the Gunners. But for his second campaign, he shaved it all off. He explained to City TV why he did it. I think it was about time. I had it since uh, I was 18, maybe. Every few weeks it was quite annoying to do it again. It was quite painful. I wanted to keep it tidy. But uh, most of all I wanted to change because I went uh, back to Senegal and uh, it was a tra- traditional party. 
and I had to shave my hair. And I knew, I knew my, uh, my grandmother didn't really like it, so to please her, I did it. That was at the start of the 2015-16 season, which would turn out to be Manuel Pellegrini's final year in charge of the team. Another haircut howler from that campaign came as a shock, after Samir Nasri returned from a very long injury layoff with blonde highlights. He told Sky Sports how he was feeling after scoring in a 2-1 win over West Brom on his return. It was great to be back and uh, to score that, uh, that winning goal. I cannot explain how happy I am. It's been more than five and a half months that I've been out and for my first game I played 80 minutes. I was a bit dead at the end but uh, we won and it's the best thing to do before Paris. The Frenchman wouldn't put his influence in the game down to his haircut though. He said he was feeling hungry after getting fit again. Maybe the the medical staff and the, the fitness coach did a, did a good work but you know when you've been out for so long you're really hungry when you come back and you just want to prove everyone that like you have the quality to be in this squad especially uh, after all the new players that we had this year I uh, wanted to give my uh, contribution to the team and uh, I tried my best and I was, uh, I was lucky today. As much as a change in hairstyle is superficial, it can signify a change in attitude as well. When Stephen Ireland went away after finishing the 2007-8 campaign with a heavy defeat at Middlesbrough, he decided he couldn't go on the way he was. We finished against Middlesbrough really badly. We lost like 8-1 or something like that and I just said, all right, it's time to change now. And I just went, knuckled down hard, done a lot of weights. Um, I, kind of, I went with a martial arts trainer. Um, who I'm friends with um, and for the whole six weeks he just looked after me and I've come back pre-season super fit and super strong and it's, it's still going now. Has it changed your game? I think it has, yeah. I think it has. Um, I just I feel like I can run and never get tired. I feel like I can play like two, three games in a row without wanting to stop. He came back with a completely shaved head. It was a bold look after the midfielder had had hair transplants the year before, having seen it thinning in his younger years. In this interview with the BBC during what would be one of his best seasons at City, he explained he was feeling relaxed. I'm just playing, playing the way I am, being the way I am, and um, I think I think a lot of fans aren't taking me a bit more now again. That's against Force and my dad for the reception, and I think that's something I've been looking at for a while, kind of trying to get the fans on my side. The fans have been great now so far, so hopefully they can continue that way. Got my hair, got my head, got my brains, got my ears, got my eyes, got my nose, got my mouth. And there's another fan favourite who made the bold change to go bald more recently too. After years of supporters watching David Silva's hair bob along as he jogged, that joy was snatched away from them as the Spaniards shaved it off completely. Blue Moon podcast panellist and fellow bald man Richard Burns reacted to Silva's new do at the beginning of last season. I mean, in all seriousness, you don't. You, why choose it? Why choose to lose your hair? I promise you. It's, you is it you not? Don't. Is it not nice? Um, I mean, I in my younger years had when I had hair, I did nothing with it, and it was it was dreadful. So, uh, I I suit the bald in look more than I suit <laughs> having hair. Um, but Silva doesn't. Silva had good hair, and. You know, you don't know what you've got till it's gone, and I think he's going to find that. It often seems to be fan favourites that make bizarre changes to their haircuts too. Elano was another who had a range of hairstyles, including curls, shaved all over, and for one game only, cornrows. Here's ex-City boss Sven-Goran Eriksson discussing more important stuff, Elano's quality on the field. He's very good at finding space there, and when he can turn up with the ball, uh, he see things, he can play in players, he can shoot, he can dribble. So there he's extremely dangerous and he sees things very quickly. Uh, sometimes you wonder if he has eyes in his back 
And it's one gift, one talent which some football players have and some will never have it. So whether it's dyed grey hair, shaved all over, or a monstrosity that makes it look like the players won a troy dash at Tony and Guy, hairstyles will always draw attention. City have had good ones and they've had bad ones in recent years too. And Sergio Aguero certainly gets the votes for many of the Blue Moon podcast team. Here's Kieran Clark giving his succinct opinion on last week's Patreon bonus show. I think he looks really sexy, to be honest with you. Um, I think it, it suits him, but I think when you look like Sergio Aguero, you know, you could have purple hair and you'd get away with it, really. After all, you can't say fairer than that. I'm Clyde Tilsley. Yeah, yeah, I know. Yeah, Barmy Night, Barcelona and all that. Yeah, that Clyde Tilsley. Um, you're listening to the Blue Moon Podcast. Enjoy. For a pledge of $2 a month, you can hear our weekly bonus show on a wide range of city topics. There's more details on patreon.com forward slash Blue Moon Podcast. Unfortunately, we have come to the final part of this week's episode of the Blue Moon Podcast. It is all about you, though. You get your questions in for Ask the Panel. You can do so for future shows via Twitter at Blue Moon Podcast, or you can email through the website bluemoonpodcast.com. The first one comes from Twitter from Emily Greenfield. She says, the Rainbow Laces campaign has been launched this week, and last season, no City player chose to wear them. How can more players be encouraged to show their support for the campaign personally instead of relying on the branded corner flags or captain's armbands? It's a good question. It's a really big question, isn't it? Um, Because it does need to be a very, very visible campaign. Um, I think, first of all, it needs to not be something that we pay lip service to once a year. This needs to be something that I think is visible all the time um, because it it is important. Um, I think we don't always deal with discrimination that well in football anyway. You know, the kick it out campaign becomes, yes, we know that we're always anti-racism, um, but the kick it out campaign, it's seen once a year. The players wear the shirts once a year. It almost doesn't feel like there's that big a deal made of it anymore. And the same of the rainbow laces thing, but maybe to a... It's even less visible. Um, last year there was no... <laughs> recourse, I want to say, for City not really engaging with that yeah, campaign yeah. or the players not engaging, by which I mean there was no negative PR for it. And whilst... I'm on board with that being somebody's personal choice. Somebody should have... uh, Sorry. Nobody should have to wear the laces if they don't want to. I think there are legitimate questions to be asked about why that was a blanket thing across the City squad. Why was was there not any encouragement for them to wear it? Was it not made more visible to the players? Were they unaware of that campaign for any reason? They get sent the laces, so I I don't think that could be the case. But it, it is odd that it was the the full squad. Um, I think, although I'm not fully sure where I stand on it, I think my personal preference would be for the laces to be the standard and for it to be an opt-out thing if players didn't want to wear it. Um, I think that that's not an ideal solution because it risks causing some... Mm. Well, no, maybe it's a good thing that it sparks debate. It is a good thing that it sparks debate. Um, You end up going down the... Yeah. The um, what's his name? The West Brom winger. Forgot his name. Exactly. Yeah, James McLean with the poppy. Um, Starts detracting from the actual. That that is true. 
that is true. I don't know. Maybe I'm. You know, I'm not. Maybe I'm not the the, the PR experts ahead of the campaign. But it's it it starts with being more visible, and then you, the questions can be asked about why are the club not engaging with this perhaps as widely as they could. I think um, the the corner flags and and the captain's armbands are are brilliant. You know, it, it's a dead simple thing to do. It's highly visible. You, I think for me, you have to question in the first place the logistics behind laces. It's not very visible in the first place. Um, what, I know oh, it's a simple little thing. The only thing I'd say on that is it was visible enough last year for people to notice that City players didn't wear any. Do you know what I mean? It it was visible enough for somebody to, to identify mm, that true. that campaign wasn't being backed. So, I mean, I do agree with you, but... Should it not be something more than just... Mm. I think it's been it's been mentioned in all the furore surrounding Gordon Taylor this week in the PFA that it's it's a campaign that the PFA haven't done enough about. Yeah, um, and that's certainly one one area where you think they should there should be more um, understanding, and that's that's the place where it should come from. Where in a, in a workplace that they should eradicate all inequalities, and uh, that's what they're there for. Certainly, I think we will uh, find out a little bit more over the uh, the next coming week when that campaign uh, is running. It's running up to the, the 1st of December, Stonewall's Rainbow Laces campaign. There's a couple of fixtures in there we will see, uh, and I'm sure we will uh, be talking about this the debate more on the Blooming Podcast in the coming weeks. Next question comes from Martin Garrett on Twitter. The FA would like to reduce the number of foreign slots in Premier League squads to 12 after Brexit do you think a rule like this could come in and if so what effect could it have on City's squad well obviously I'm not an expert on Brexit there aren't uh, <laughs> yeah um, but it has been they have tried haven't they the Premier League to, to push something through yeah I'm, I always look at the players who you think may get into this City team, the English players over the over the years, uh, and look where they've where they've ended up. They're not. It's not like they've ended up at um, you know the eighth best mm. team in the Premier League or something like that. They've generally ended up in the lower leagues. Um, I, yeah, it's 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 very difficult, isn't it? Because you look at someone like Phil Foden, for example, who's so good, um, but he's got if he wants to be one of the best players in the world, and he's got to oust David Silva, Bernardo Silva, uh, and Gundogan. Um, but that's what you've got to do. That's if you're going to be the best best player, doesn't matter. Doesn't really matter where you come from. It's not going to. It's not going to improve the English national team no. by having someone who's not better than David Silva playing for England. That's not going to help in any way. You've got to, to be the best. You've got to beat the best. Yeah, I think. Um... I think the over overriding sort of feeling is that it'll totally deteriorate the quality of of the Premier League, which is, I think, why they're, they're sort of so against this, isn't it? Yeah, and and sort of how could it not? Hmm. Because you would be wiping out. Well, you'd just be wiping out the opportunity to add so much quality to yeah. it. And one of the things that people that people where they don't see the. the the big picture, I think, in this idea that the number of foreign players has sort of stymied the chances of the England team at major international tournaments. Well, how many were we winning when there was only English players in the Premier League? Yeah, exactly. Do you know yeah. what I mean? Like, 1966. 
and a couple of a couple of decent cracks at Euro '96, and obviously the foreign players in the Premier League by '96, but not in the way they are now. Um, and obviously a good go at Italia '90, but in the grand scheme of things, England aren't hugely worse off. I know they've had a few, few particularly fallow years, but the influx of foreigners into the Premier League is not the reason England haven't haven't had a successful national team, and it is extremely blinkered to think that it is there's so mm. much more reason for it and it starts with grassroots development get that right you'll have more English players in the league you're now okay we don't want to lose all the best English youngsters to the Bundesliga as sort of Jade and Sancho and, and a couple of others might be forebearers for um, but reducing foreigners in the, in the Premier League on non-homegrown players it, it just isn't the, the, the fix all that's going to yeah. work uh, and finally, we have a uh, one final question from Joe Roper, who has emailed him. Realistically, how many Premier League teams could City's B team beat? <laughs> well, that's a good question, though, isn't it's, it? Yeah. I think you have to sort of define like City's B team, really, don't you? Is it the side that, you know... Does it include Bravo? Because we're in trouble. In 11? I mean, do you have well, I guess Gabriel you go... Jesus in there? Do you have... Yeah, I guess so. Murich and Danilo... Foden starts in the B team. Yeah. Um, I think they'd, they wouldn't go down, would they? Um, yeah, I, I think they'd solid mid-table. Just above United, I think. Excellent. Well, Got to finish with a bit of Burton. Joe, I, mean. I hope that, uh, that answered your question there, but unfortunately that is it for another week of the Blue Moon Podcast action. But if you really can't wait for the next instalment, we've got a bonus show for all our patron backers of $2 a month or more. All the money goes towards keeping the show at the very top of its game in a radio studio and with regular features and interviews as well. This week's bonus show is all about City in the 1990s, so uh, you might have to brace yourself for that one. (laughs) On top of at least 40 to 50 minutes of bonus material each month for that price, you'll also get access to our patron-only blog where David Mooney and our very own Richard Burns, who's joined us this evening, will be writing exclusive articles all season long. What's the latest one you've done, Richard? Uh, An issue that we touched on tonight. My next one coming shortly is on why this is such a big season for Leroy Sani. Can't wait to read that one. If you are expecting rewards like mugs or bottle openers from the higher tiers because your third patron payment was taken at the start of November we have to say a quick sorry because there has been a delay in getting them out to you however all these people with an open bottle however they will be sent in the coming days David Mooney's in the warehouse he's going to be packaging <laughs> and, uh, and sending them out over the coming weekend enjoy Premier League football it is back in our lives this weekend thank you very much once again to my two studio guests ESPN's Jonathan Smith thanks Sam and City fan and blogger Richard Burns. Thank you, Sam. Have a great weekend. Take care. ta That was the Blue Moon Podcast. Please support the show. Patreon.com forward slash Blue Moon Podcast. <laughs> Did that come on